Welcome back. I am here again with Grant Cameron. Grant, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to see you, my friend. Yeah, Sean, I appreciate your podcast. I'm listening to all your podcasts now. You've got some insight because you were in the government. And I really appreciate the questions you're asking the people that you're talking to, because I'm picking up a lot of stuff that it's not sort of the regular, you know, DDCA UFO type stuff. It's trying to figure out like almost what I'm doing is trying to figure out what the hell is really going on here, like beyond the sightings, beyond this sort of stuff. There's something going on in the background. How much does the government know? How much do we understand about this? And in the end, what is really going on here? So as part of that theme, you have a book called UFO Sky Pilots and yeah. Whitney Strieber actually recommended we talked talked a little bit about it. But let's let's dive a little bit deeper into that topic because I know I've spoken to Lim Buchanan and I was floored by his experience of it. And there's a whole episode on that. I don't want to retread too much of it. But how did you start getting into that topic? When did you first learn of these experiencers who've had a, a chance to fly a, a craft? Okay, it all started. Everything that I've had in my personal experience, as I've said, is I got dragged into one thing after another. I didn't intend to see UFO. I had no interest in UFOs. And then I was watching this lecture by Colin Andrews in February 26, 2012 in Laughlin, Nevada. And that's where I got this download that, you know, the answer you want to know in 1975, what's going on? It's consciousness. And then it was like, it came with this absolute certainty. It was like, oh, that's, you know, it's like, that's how it works. All the pieces are coming together. And shortly after that, so that's 2012, I got contacted by Stacy Wright, who runs the big MUFON group in Phoenix. It's a huge group. She's built this thing up. And she, we were at an event or something. She said, are you still going to talk to, to Pam Dupuy? And I went, yeah, I guess so. I thinking I must have agreed to talk to this woman. I don't know who she's talking about or whatever. She says, that's good. And I was staying at Stacy's house. Stacy says, I'm, I'm going to work on Monday. She's going to come to the house and you can talk to her. And I said, oh, okay. So then it's a Monday morning and I'm there and this car pulls up and this woman, she's in her seventies, gets out and her partner is there and she's got a, a carafe of coffee and he's got a pumpkin pie. And they coming up to the door and I'm like, what the heck's going on here? And then she says, what did Stacy tell you about me? And I said, I don't know. She just said, I'm supposed to talk to you. That's good. She comes walking in the house and she starts in on that. You've heard it before, you know, like I got abducted as a kid and I was in a diaper in the middle of the field and the beings were there. And she tells this story. I think maybe you've had some experiences talking to people. They're sitting in a circle inside the craft and they're being taught how to levitate a ball around the room. And there's three different color balls and one's easy to do, one's medium and one's hard to do. And she's telling all these stories. And it's like, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, I've heard this sort of stuff before and she's going on. And then all of a sudden she says, oh, and I was flying the craft. And I says, what? You're what? And she says, I was flying. I, I, I flew the craft. And she, I said, you flew the craft. And she's like in her 70s. And all I could think in my head was I'm seeing a Saudi Arabian woman in a car. It has to have a, her husband or a man in the car. Otherwise, she can't drive a car. And I'm going, they, right. they let you fly the craft. <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, and I didn't, I was ready to throw her out of the house. I just thought, okay, that's enough. I mean, I've heard weird stories, but I mean, now you're you're off in crazy land. And I said, they let you fly the craft? She said, yeah, I've, thrown, I've flown three different models. And I said, well, how do you fly the craft? And she says, oh, you do it with your mind. And then I instantly knew why they'd stuck me with this woman, because I had this download about consciousness. And she was talking this thing with consciousness. So I said, you do it with your mind? She said, yeah. And, she, and so we later we got her... And she actually was in a hospice. She was in a hospice. We did an interview with her just before she died. And she was, she was, we were asking her about this. And she was talking about how they had progressed from stage to stage to teach people with a head, first, first a headband. And they, they would do all this kind of stuff. 
And it was just fascinating because after that, people started coming to me with these stories about flying the craft. Or for example, I'd have Chris Bledsoe. And then at one point, Chris Bledsoe saying that he had flown the craft. I said, hang on. I said, they let you fly the craft too? And he said, yeah. I said, Chris, stop. I'm going to I'm gonna contact you on Skype. I don't want you to tell me anything more. I'm going to contact you on Skype. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tape the thing. And I want you to tell me exactly how you fly the craft. And then he would tell me the story. He said, you know, and his, he tells a story that Terry Lovelace tells. It's like he goes to the craft. The craft is there. And he goes inside the craft. And it's huge on the inside of the craft. And he's looking around and he looks outside the craft. And it's like, uh, you know, sort of small. And he goes inside the craft. And it's huge. Exactly what Terry Lovelace said. And then he's, he talks about how the beings are standing there. And there's this pedestal in the middle. And every, every story is different. So it's not like everybody's telling exactly the same story, which is another thing that I've come across is that I think that all UFO sightings are different, all aliens are different, all the way the crafts. It has this basic pattern, but there's a part of you that's in there that morphs the experience to your own thing. So some people will say you put your hand on a panel. Some people will say you put your hand on a ball. You levitate your hand above a ball. You put your hands in the end of these the chair and these fingers. And Chris Bledsoe's was, there was this pedestal in the middle of the room, and there was the panels. He drew the panels for me, but this pedestal was there. And he said, they told him, put your hand on this, on this, look like a beehive. He actually drew it for me. It was a pedestal with a, like a beehive on top. Put his hand on top of this pedestal. And then he said, all of a sudden, things started to sort of change. And he took his hand off, and he could see where his hand was. And he described it like a CD-ROM, you know, how it has those sort of colors going through it when you shine light on it. And he said that all these... Colors were going through this thing, and he could see the handprint of it of his hand. And then he said things started to change, and there was these hexagons in the wall, and these hexagons started. They were all spinning, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger, and the, the craft was getting bigger as these hexagons started got bigger. And I have one other woman that had exactly not exactly the same story, but she talked about these hexagons and it described her whole life. She's trying to figure out what's these hexagons. I said, "You talked to Chris Bledsoe. He had these hexagons." And he said, "Then it got bigger, and all of a sudden he said, boom! The the window was open in the front." And he was above the Cape Fear River. That's where he was abducted. And then he said, I remember I was sitting cross-legged on the floor, driving down the, the Cape Fear River, about three or four inches off the water, going, Yahoo! And, like saucer. <laughs> and so I'd get these stories. I started gathering them together. And I had a lot of these stories. I, I ended up with 36 or 40. And then Whitley Strieber came forward. Now we hear uh, Buchanan's had an experience, and, and I asked Yuri Geller, and Yuri Geller seems to confirm that he's had an experience like this. And so the, the whole thing came down to gathering all these witnesses together. And I have, for example, a guy who was a 747 United Airlines pilot, and I had heard that he had had an experience through one of Stephen Gurr's original people in California. He said this Joe Vallejo had had an experience. So I, I contacted Joe and I said, did you have the experience? He said, yeah, I had that experience. He said, but I, I, it, it seemed like a dream. And I said, well, everybody thinks it's a dream. And he, so he said, I said, well, tell me. And he said, well, I had this experience. It was like a dream. And then I told Joe Burks, who was the guy that told me about it. I told Joe and then Joe told the story. And then he said, about a year later, I had the same dream again. I'm flying the craft again. And then he went to Joe and he said, I had that dream again about flying the craft. And Joe says, I think you better tell us, you better put the story down. So he tells the story, same thing. This is like a United Airlines 747 captain who's got this thing and he's got his hands on this panel and he's going through the clouds and whatever he thinks. So it's the idea that it's all one thing. And that's what I have come to conclusions. All one thing, it's all symbiotic. So when you touch the craft, the craft is alive. Everything's alive. It has this consciousness. And some people even give the craft a name. 
they have a name for the craft or yeah. uh, they, they're actually talking to the craft. They can interact with the craft and whatever you think is what the craft does. And so if you want to go to Alpha Centauri, you, you simply think about it and boom, you're there. And, they, and the beings will say to you, Sean, it is within you. Go within yourself. It's within you. And as soon as you can imagine it, you will be there. And that's the same thing as remote viewing. So what do you do with remote viewers? You, you give them a target number, whatever the target number is. And you don't sit there and say, and the guy says, hang on, I'm flying there right now. I'll be there in a minute. He goes, I'm at the target. It's like, boom, you're at the target. And then you have these expressions. Greer uses one in his protocol for the CE5. The Sufi expression, you see yourself as a puny form when within you is enfolded the entire universe. And that's this whole idea that it all may be within yourself. John Wheeler said, he was the guy that came up with black hole, wormhole theory, all this kind of stuff. He was the intellectual successor to Einstein at Princeton. And he said, I would not be at all surprised if the entire universe turned out to be a figment of the imagination. And it's this idea, there may not be any physical world, it's all within you. And if you can imagine it within yourself, and I would even have weird experiences. Like I'd have the one guy I was lecturing at Orange County at, at there. And there's a guy by the name David. That's all I know is his first name is David. And he didn't attend the lecture. And I was talking about flying the craft there. And we went, you know, how they go after the after the thing, they go to the restaurant. We're sitting in the restaurant and everybody's talking. And all of a sudden this David guy comes in and they say, hey, David, you should have been Grant's lecture. He's talking about flying the craft. You should tell him your story. And I said, oh, you flew the craft? And, he's, and he says, uh, I think it was a dream. I said, everything's just a dream. And then the guy yells, I says, David, tell him what you are. And I said, well, what do you do? And he said, I'm a pilot. I said, oh, my father's a pilot. My son's a pilot. I said, what kind of planes do you fly? And he says, oh, I fly this, that, whatever. And then he says, F-16s. And I say, you flew F-16s? He said, yeah, I'm a, I was a, I'm a retired U.S. Air Force colonel. I flew combat in Iraq. I said, sit down and tell me a story about flying the craft. It's the same thing. He goes in the craft and they, they, the bizarre thing, the, it's almost like the, the intelligence is sort of feeding the story to me piece by piece, because this is a new part of the story that's only happened in the last six months. And if I could go back and ask all these 36 people, I would ask this question, but I didn't. It was only in the last little while. So he says, I'm sitting there and he says, there's somebody behind me. I don't know if it's humans or it's it's aliens, but there's somebody behind me and they're telling me what to do. And he said, I'm in this craft and they're behind me and I'm, I'm looking and then they say, go ahead and do it. And then he says, and it's all telepathic. He says, I don't know what to do. And they say, you know what to do, just do it. And he looks and there's this panel along the wall and he goes and he says, I put my hand on the panel and he said, it's like an F-16. He's, he talked about suction cups or something. It's like F F-16 suction cups. He says, I'm sitting there. He says, and suddenly I'm flying the craft. And he said, it was just like flying an F-16. And he said, he took one hand off the panel and he's waiting for the craft to stall and he's going to slam his hand back down on the panel and he's got his hand up and nothing's happening. And then he takes his other hand, but he leaves it a couple inches above so he can put it back down. And he's got both his hands off the panel and he's flying the craft. And then the, the thing with, but the people behind, I run across an, ex, an interview was done with Jim Semivan. So Jim Semivan is being interviewed by James Ian Dolly. And James is trying to get him to talk about his experience, about the beings that he saw and uh, this whole story. And Jim doesn't want to talk very much about the thing. So James is sort of poking at him and he figures, I'll ask him one more question. So was there any telepathy involved in this experience with, with the beings? And that's when Jim says, he said, yeah, that was the most interesting part. He said, there was this entity behind me and it had this guardian type thing going on about it. And as soon as I said that, I said, Hey, that's what the, that's, their, their, their colonel said as well. That's what a lot of them said. There's somebody behind them. And then I said to, so I said to James, contact him. Is it on his left side or right side? Because if you ever studied Michael Newton, which is a big influence on me, Life Between Lives, 
Michael Newton will talk about the fact 7,000 people, and they all talk about this experience. When you die, you have this life review. And you go in front of this panel, and it has between three and 12 people, and you stand there in this big sort of a, it's like a, it seems to be like a courtroom or something. And they're up on this dais, and they're, and they've got these medals around them, and they're way there's white stuff, and you can't really see their faces. And then your soul guide stands behind you on the left side. And then I'm thinking when Jim Semivan said it had this guardian type thing going on about it, I'm going, hey, is it on his right side or his left side? This may be a soul guide. This may all be, uh, we're playing we're playing aliens and you're going to play humans and we're going to have this whole thing. And that's when I, if I could go back and ask all these people, because a lot of people asked Whitley. I said, hey, Whitley, did, did you ever have anybody standing behind you that you couldn't really see? And he said, all the time. He said, in fact, and he, he didn't tell it on your interview, but in when he interviewed me, he talks about the fact that he wanted to steal the craft. So he's standing in front of the panel and he thinks to himself, he says, hey, I'd like to steal this thing. And he says behind him, someone starts laughing. <laughs> and it's this whole idea. And Whitley just confirms it as well. So it's this whole idea. There's a bunch of people will talk about this fact that there's people behind them. But now I'm working backwards. I've got I, I could go back and interview these people, but now it's all contaminated. So now the story's out there. Before I was the only person that had these stories. I was hearing these stories. So I could you go on the internet. You couldn't find really stories about people flying the craft and the symbiotic thing and how you become one with the craft and the craft is alive and stuff like that. And but now it's sort of you go back and people are starting to hear the story. So it's kind of like there's not much you can do with it anymore. Now, <clears throat> now the story did originally appear, at least Lynn's story did originally appear in Jim Mars' book, Alien Agenda. I think it was in 1995. I discovered it after I had interviewed him, but there were a number of other stories that I had heard since then. But not many, I mean, let's let's be honest here, not many people read. So, yeah, well, exactly. Or or they, they put the stories, because those stories sort of stick in the back of my head. And then when somebody tells me another story, then it sort of rings in my head. And then I have to run through it, figure out what the, what the reference was and put it together. And that's where I sort of think that, if, for example, there's another story that most people don't know. I'm actually I'm trying to track it right down now. I think it's in an interview that Tom DeLong does in 2016. He brings out his first book and he has an interview with George Knapp. And in that interview, he's at Lockheed and he's telling this whole story in the skiff. I don't know if you've heard the story where he's in the skiff oh. and, and and they're they're confronting him about this this conspiracy website they had in 2012 like what's with this conspiracy and it was like like 10 times the national inquiry it was just like horrible stories and stuff you know QAnon stuff and 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 right. they, what's with this thing and then he's trying to justify the fact that he was running this conspiracy website but he wants to be the guy that's going to tell the message to the american people and then he's telling the story and then the the head scientist he says asks him so i just want to know like what how did they get here what's what's this all about and then he says, and he was hanging around with Stephen Greer. People don't know that. He was a big Stephen Greer guy. Greer had given him these 35 hours of tapes. And he was hiding them under the bed. And he believed the government was tapping his phone. And he kept changing phones. And, and he was really petrified the government was going to knock him off and stuff like that. And so he says to the head scientist, because he was hanging around with Greer, he says, I think uh, consciousness is involved. And then he yep, said, the head yep. scientist at Lockheed Skunk Works says, now you're talking. And he said, that's all the guy wanted to talk about for 45 minutes was consciousness. So they know, they know this connection or the, in the Wilson leak document at the very end, people say, oh, it's disinformation, all this kind of stuff. There's no abduction. And that's the whole thing. Abduction, there's an event, but what is the event? Because Kid Green says no abduction. Edgar Mitchell said no abduction. Jacques Vallée laughs at it. And it's this idea, there's an event going on, but is it an out-of-body experience, which a lot of people will describe. When they come back from the abduction, they come back into their bedroom and they're sitting on the side of the bed. So what's actually going on? It's a, you, We sort of make these stories, but it's more complex than that. 
And so with this whole thing, I think the government sort of understands. And in the Wilson leak document at the very end, it says no abductions. And it, it says, and we have a craft we think it'll fly. So everybody says, oh, it's just you know, disinformation. And as soon as I said that, I go, oh, they know. It's like they've got a craft. I've heard this from Lear 30 years ago. They have a craft that's completely intact and they can't turn it on. And they can't turn it on because you need a consciousness interface. You need somebody to put their hand on the panel to get this thing to go. It's almost like your cell phone where you use your fingerprint or your face print or whatever. You need that. And that's what they're missing. So they got the craft that can't turn it on. And that may be why they're going to remote viewers. They're trying to find someone who can turn the craft on and, and break that link. Because it, it, so we've heard that even back in the 1980s, there was a story. It was called The Core Story that I had written about back in 1990 already that helped put off. Jacques Vallée and Kit Green go to a Denny's restaurant and they're saying there's so much stuff in the UFO community. We really don't know what to believe, what not to believe. They came up with what they call the core story. What do we know for sure? We know we're being interacted by some sort of intelligence. We've got hardware and we're not doing very well back engineering in that. And that's what uh, people like Eric Davis will say. They put it on the shelf in 1989. They take it off the shelf every seven or eight years. They can't figure it out. And that's the thing is, has this consciousness interface. There's no engine. I'm going to pull this engine out of this thing and we're going to build it. We're all going to get free energy and all this kind of stuff. It's this very complex thing that gets more and more complex as you go along. And it's all linked into this consciousness thing. So that's why the book is so important. It, it has not one or two, it has like 36 people. And other than the fact that they're, they're touching different things or stuff like that. And the other thing that they'll describe that you see these similarities, for example, when Chris Bledsoe goes inside the craft or Terry Lovelace goes inside the craft, they say, well, oh, the craft is way bigger on the inside as outside. I had an experiencer who'd flown the craft and his name is Ron Johnson, very interesting guy, a Mormon guy out of uh, the Salt Lake City area. And he said when he was there, they took him to the spirit world. And he was with his dead mother. He's walking around in, in this spirit world with his dead mother. And she's showing him this building. It looked like a temple in Nephi, Utah. And he says, she takes me inside the building. And she says, when you die, Ron, you're going to get a, a room inside this building. He goes inside the room. And he said, and it was like 10 or 100 times the size inside. And I go, hey, that's what the UFO people say. Is he in the spirit world or is he in our UFO? <laughs> and you started realizing this stuff all links together. This whole idea that it's it's built with the mind. And, and that's where they say what the beings say. It's within you. Go within yourself. It's all within you. Or the idea that people will say, they put their hand on a panel, I heard this, and, and they would ring the bell. Like one guy at a Liverpool says, I put my hand, he says, can I have a go at it? There's a bunch of people and they're all flying the craft. He said, can I have a go at it? And they said, yeah. And so he puts his hand on the panel. He said, as soon as he puts his hand on the panel, he can see him in 360 degrees. And I go, hey, that's what the out-of-body experience people say as well. That's what the people who do the blindfold reading say. They can see behind them, around them, all this kind of stuff. And you start realizing that all this stuff is connected. And so I'm excited by the implications of this thing is that the government does understand this consciousness thing, but that may be what the secrecy is about is they're trying to figure it out. They can't figure it out either. It just gets more right. complex for them. And they're just as much behind the veil as we are. We are trying to get little bits and pieces. And we always make this assumption that the government's got all this stuff. And we've got to realize that the government may not understand this kind of stuff because it's not in anybody's department. So if you're like, I remember I worked at the University of Manitoba and people always say, oh, you know, university, your government, you, you know, everything. No, you're in your little department. You're in your little office. And I said to people, 
if I was at the university, I had keys to the president's office, eight vice president's offices. I had the keys to payroll. I had keys to everything. Do you think if I knew what was going on at the University of Manitoba, I had all these keys that I would have left six months before a major buyout? And, and, and it's the whole idea. You know your little piece. So in the government, people think, well, there's people working on it. But whose department is it? I mean, flying saucers. It's not in anybody's department. You're in the agriculture department. I don't care about flying saucers. I'm, I'm trying to balance the budget or whatever it is. And I think it's up to you and I, and I think we're getting helped. I'm for sure I'm getting little indications of where to go that we're starting to piece this thing together. And the bottom line is it is way more complex than people think it is. I'm saying it's at least a thousand times more complex than than people think it is. And I think you got to cut the government some slack in the fact that they're trying to figure it out as well. And just because you have a scientist, if you're a chemist, he's not going to figure it out. A physicist is not going to figure it out. You need an interdepartmental thing. And that's the problem mm -hmm. that they've had and is the fact that it's all stovepipe that nobody's talking to anybody. And that's why they're trying to bring it into this public thing. And we have the same problem that we see some guy who's got a PhD or whatever, and we'll let him say whatever he wants. And we think, well, this guy's smart. He, he knows everything. And I came up differently because when I started at the University of Manitoba, I had a very pow powerful experience in that I worked as a bartender at the faculty club lounge for a number of years. And I remember the guy that trained me, had two PhDs. He was going to go work for the U.S. Navy, working on submarines, on making making noise with the propeller and this sort of stuff. And he said, he told me, as he's training, he said, just remember one thing about these guys. When they've had one too many beers, they're just like anybody else on the street. So I knew a lot of academics. I was at university for 40 years and I wasn't a professor, but I was working in, I dealing with all these guys every day. And I realized these guys, you assume that the guy's got a PhD in, say, the one guy was a plant scientist guy, you, dean of plant science, used to argue with me all the time. And, and at one point I said, hey, you're a plant science guy. I mean, you know, how to build, you know how to make a rose and you know what roses are, but you know nothing about UFOs. And he goes, yeah, you're right. And that's what we don't realize. We think because you got a PhD, you're very smart, you know everything. And you don't bring in a plant scientist in to fix your teeth or to do a heart operation. Where they, They're all very compartmentalized. And that's the problem we're having as well, is that you need this interdepartmental uh, thing where everybody's putting this stuff together and you got to listen. And then I think it, it starts to make sense. But it easily, once you start getting in this consciousness thing, you start realizing this thing is not what people really think it is. They think it's some nuts and bolts thing. And if it was nuts and bolts, we would have figured it out in 1947. And we, we know already from the Canadian government in 1950, there was a top secret memo written. And it said in that top secret memo, we were also told by American officials that other things might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. And they're not doing very well because they say if we're working on the problem, they're willing to exchange credentials and talk to us. In 1950 already, they knew the Americans told the Canadians that mental phenomena is involved. And, and we haven't figured it out yet because it's that very, very complex type of thing. And we make these false assumptions about the world is flat and the sun goes around the earth and things are solid. And when you start realizing that it, there may not be a physical world, as a lot of quantum physics guys said, consciousness is primary, then you can start saying, oh, now I can see why how they can move people through walls and how, how people can mm -hmm. see the future and the past and stuff. You start realizing that majority of the stuff we have is wrong. We're assuming that we've got all the pieces of the puzzle. We just need one more piece and we'll put that piece of the puzzle and, and we start realizing like, no, we have no clue what's going on. Yeah, I think what you're seeing is in this, you know, what is it? So, so above, so, or so, so as below, something like that, right? I think the the more we look out into the universe, the more we see that there are more galaxies and there are more universes, et cetera, yeah. ad infinitum. And I think if you should look down, and they say, oh, the quark is the smallest 
subatomic, <laughs> right? I think if we keep looking down, it's just going to, it's a fractal pattern forever, right? Yeah. And yeah, there's even, your there's point, even, I'll just ju- jump in two quick things there. David Bohm had said, I'm trying to find the quote, but David Bohm had said, when you figure out that whole quantum physics thing and get to the bottom, there's just another level below that. And then the, the scientists, are, it's like, we're going to figure this thing out. And if you look out in the galaxy, people don't realize when you look out into the universe, it was 1925. It's not even a hundred years where there was a major debate. People always talk about the evolution debate. There was a big debate as well between Hubble and a guy by the name of Shapley. And Shapley was the authority on uh, outer space and astronomy and stuff like that. It was a big debate. And Hubble said he had discovered a second galaxy. He was calling it Andromeda. And Shapley said, bull, it is not. And there's only one galaxy and you're finding a cloud inside the Milky Way. And there was a big debate in 1925. Or is there more than one galaxy so we got to realize that when, when einstein and all these guys developed the, all these theories back at that time they all believed there was only one galaxy and we got to realize that every time we learn something new we learn that we got something wrong and that that's where uh, gary nolan talks about and I've, I've got him to confirm the quote and that's the whole idea i'm not interested in the 95 percent i know i'm interested in the five percent anomalies that's when the nobel prizes are going to come from and we got to realize there's stuff there we don't know because it is if the world was the way people say it is it's nuts and bolts and stuff like that this stuff would not be happening this stuff is happening which means there's something we've got that's wrong and the first guy that figures that out wins the nobel prize yeah so two things that you talked about that i definitely want to touch on so the point about specialization right so humanity has increasingly specialized you're talking about phds oh. right now they're so in the weeds on their one particular item to your point there are fewer integrators just because the level and volume of information has expanded by so much. But I think this solution requires on the spectrum of like hard science versus soft science, you're going to need psychologists and neuroscientists to work with physicists, quantum physicists, in order to understand some of this stuff. And those people just don't <laughs> didn't want to speak the same language. So like you said, people like you and I have to come in and try to see just look at the correlations and just group the data together and try to at least point to a direction. Yeah, and then and the other problem that in that regards to that is that we sort of assume this idea that the guy's very smart and he's going to figure it out. And so we rely on science. Science is going to unravel this thing. Science is not going to unravel this thing because they're down in the weeds, as you describe it, and and they're into this physical world. And so what we do is you have to talk to the people that are interacting with the intelligence, and we're not. We're saying, oh, we need uh, Avi Loeb from from Harvard. And then he starts this thing about he's going to look at the stars and planets and all this kind of stuff. And you you got to talk to the people. And what we've done is we've ignored the people who are actually interacting with the intelligence. And when you start talking to them, you start realizing what's actually going on. But it's like, oh, it's anecdotal. And it's like, well, no, we, let, let's go talk about Nimitz again. Well, Nimitz is all anecdotal. It's like Jacques Vallée said. It's a UFO sighting yeah. 20 years ago. Let's get over it already. And we think that because they're a military guy, he's a better witness than the people on the street. And we're ignoring the people that have flown the craft, that have been inside the craft. And we start going there and, and going with them. Then we start to realize what's going on. But we've we've sort of thrown them out of the puzzle, believing that there's these smart guys. And that's why I say this job was so important that I had. I saw some stuff that I, you would never believe that professors would do. But they were just ordinary people you could never tell if you if you were there you couldn't tell who was a professor who wasn't a professor we used to play games with them because we always called it 
PhD was piled higher and deeper. And we'd play this game <laughs> where, where guys would go and, and they started hiring people who were master's degrees from India and stuff because it was way cheaper. You could, instead of using a full tenured professor making huge money and only working six months a year, they'd bring in these guys and they would have master's degrees. So people would go to them and say, good morning, doctor. And the guy, and, and the one guy would do it all the time to whoever he could. Nobody ever said, I'm not a doctor. I'm just got a master's degree because it's all about ego. Mm. And they would, they would play this game. Like I'm this smart guy and I know everything. And that's the problem I think that we have is the main problem we have is we're ignoring experiencers. We're ignoring these people who will tell you when you get 36 of them together and they start telling you that the mind controls this thing and wherever they want to go, that even John Ramirez, when I talked to him, John Ramirez talks about the fact there wasn't even a craft. He could go to this ice planet and he, he could just, he, it was some sort of uh, triangle thing with these spinning triangles or whatever, I can't remember it was. But it, you start getting that kind of stuff where you start asking people, this person, and then they've got an experience, that person, and the, per the people never bring it up because it, it's not really relevant. Even when I got the interview with Whitley Strieber, I didn't realize Whitley Strieber had, had and I don't know if he flew the craft. I know he, he was at the panel board and he was thinking about stealing it and, and stuff like that. But you start realizing, hey, this thing can be solved. We, we've got this sort of stuff. And I think they're watching us, like the idea that they're following the, I guarantee they've read the book, you know, the Sky Pilot, because they're trying to figure this thing out as well. And what would you do? That's when they asked Chris Bledsoe. Chris Bledsoe has all these experiences. And he said to them at one point, he has all these high level military people and intelligence people on his property, whatever. He said to one guy, what are you doing here? Like my family's all upset about this. My kids, they don't even really want to talk to me because it's a very religious community and stuff like that. What are you doing here? And, he, and then the guy says to him, well, he says, it appears that you've got contact. And it, so it appears that maybe they like you and they don't like us because they're not talking to us. So we've come to find out what are they telling you? <laughs> and that's the whole deal is that the, the experiencers are being watched by the, the government because they're trying to figure out what's going on as well. And the, to make the assumption that the government's got this thing figured out, the more I look at it, the more it's like, nah, they, they know it's real. They know stuff. They've got hardware and stuff like that. But no, in terms of putting it together, I, I don't think they really have. It's more like military bravado. We won the Vietnam War. We got it all in control. Don't worry about it. You know? And that's that kind of stuff where they're sort of writing their own history. Well, two interesting data points to support that. And if you look at YouTube statistics and I look at my videos, there's something called average percent viewed, right? Yeah. The video where I have, it's almost like a flat line. Yeah. It has the highest percent view ratio. It's almost like meticulous is the one called what is the government hiding? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as if somebody was. And also, and I'll, I'll show this too. When I interviewed Whitley, he talked about, you were talking about the craft experience. He quickly mentioned, I was about to fly the craft and I decided I wanted to go to the White House, and then it stopped. And I said, well, in that that little moment, there's a little spike. <laughs> so Dots, little openings in the board that are... You the, have to align the dots, the light on the, the dots, right? You have to put your hands in these handprints, and, and, and then you whoosh, your consciousness becomes the ship, and you're suddenly not a body anymore, but you're a ship, and you're flying it. And believe me, if you want a thrilling experience, that really tops them all. And if you read UFO Sky Pilots, you'll find that everyone who does it, it's extraordinary. And not only is that extraordinary, but you go wherever you think of. 
except if you're me, and then you're immediately stopped because you wanted to go to the White House. <laughs> Wait, so so you had the opportunity to do that, and you wanted to I'm go not to the White go House? Into and... it. I'm not going to go into okay. it. But suffice to say, I think it's a lot of fun. That's number one. Number two is when I was talking to Terry, Terry Loveless, and we were talking about his implants, I noticed that he's got two. One is very clearly non-terrestrial because it, it's made out of his own bone and it's in a floral pattern. But the other one looks like the government planted it. And as as I was walking him down that line of inquiry, suddenly my internet went out. Yeah. So then I had to get back on and again, started going down that line of inquiry. Internet went out. Now, look, it could be a coincidence, the other thing is getting an interview with anybody who's associated with the government. Like I've sent Travis Taylor multiple emails, no response. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who has any tie with the government won't talk to me. I don't know why, but they won't. It's almost like I'll figure something. I don't know. Yeah, well, anyway. they'd be under classification. I mean, their job's on the line. People got to realize these people have security and non-disclosure agreements and all this kind of stuff and i remember there's the one i because i dealt with all these guys what we now call the aviary back in the day before i finally released something that they all stopped talking to me they just basically just like guy, guy can't keep his mouth shut and my bottom line is like what what difference does it make if i figure it out i mean if i don't tell anybody i mean what, what good does it mean taken to the grave it's just another person that's been added on and so i had these guys who were sort of feeding me stuff. And one of them was asked, you may have heard the story. We have to keep the guy's name out of it, but he was asked, could you name the 12 guys who are running the program? And the guy said, mm -hmm. yeah, I probably could. And then the question was asked, well, why don't you release it? And then he said, well, because you go to the New York Times, New York Times would print an article, I'd have to deny it and nobody would ever talk to me again. And people got to realize that's part of the deal is that they're trying to get their gather together as well. And if they talk for when I when I made this one leak, that's what they called an intelligence blowback. So there was like, oh, shit, who's going to lose their job now? And they're all sitting there waiting to see what's going to happen. And then really nothing happened. But that's what they're doing is that if they get to be seen as being the leaker. So if Travis Taylor tells you something, then oh, this guy's the leaker. And then they stop talking to Travis Taylor. And that, that's the this game. So they've got everybody. That's why I always say to people say, oh, I'll tell you something, but you got to keep a secret. I say, you tell me, I'm telling everybody. I don't end up playing the game. I'm, I used to play that game. You get stuck in this box. And once you agree to, to keep something secret for some government guy, they got you because they, they can feed you stuff and you can never, ever release who you're talking to and stuff like that. So that's where I see that one of the big problems is that they, once these guys sign these non-disclosure agreements, they've got them. They, 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 they just basically can't say anything to anybody. And they're, they're always running from the story. They may know what's going on. And I guess it's up to you and I and people that are sort of working on this sort of the inside track as to what's really going on. And we can't really confirm it, but, you know, we can put two and two together. We can sort of see what's actually going on here. Yeah. And that's how they get Congress, too. They say, oh, OK, yeah. we'll have you in a classified briefing and then they'll reveal stuff that you and I know. And they'll be like, that's classified. So they can't even talk about or confirm yeah. stuff that is in the, you know, for instance, like the Nimitz. Well, you can't talk about the Nimitz anymore. Yeah. What? 
but everybody knows, well, sorry, but that's, that's yeah. classified and you've been read into this program and yeah. you can't answer yeah, that, any of these that's, questions. That's where I talk about the Eisenhower, be, beware the military industrial complex. It was actually beware the military industrial congressional complex. They took the word congressional out just before he gave the speech because he didn't want to offend Congress. But that's where you get where I talk about the F-35 jet fighter, which is always like overproduction costs and stuff like that. And it's made in 46 different states. So why would you make it in 46 different states? Because nobody's going to vote against it. If suddenly it's overrun by 100%, I mean, everybody's got their hand in the cookie jar and you've got everybody. And that's they compromise people. And I got compromised a couple of times, but now I just basically say, no, it's on the record. I mean, I'm, I, you want to keep secrets. Don't tell me just, you know, go away because you get stuck in that box. And it just annoys me, this, the secrets that I've been forced to sort of hold. And I even had a will thing, which people should do if they're in this situation is I had a, a lawyer drop an actual agreement that if I died, I had a whole pile of documents and stuff that I had that would be released the day after I died. And then I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, I'd sure like to be around the day after I die. I mean, it's just <laughs> going to blow up. But some of them I've already released, like the Wilson Leak document, the alien autopsy. Yeah. They were in there. They've been released now. And, and I was horrified when I released the, the Wilson Leak document. I mean, it was a pretty scary time. I released that. And then like years later, I realized who had it. They all had it, all these people, and they're all sitting on it. I'm going, I just like lost respect for all these people because they're all compromised, all the top people. And when you have it, oh, 10 years ago, and it's like, well, you know, and I had to leak, we'd still be in the dark if we had not leaked this document. And that's the whole thing is I even had a document that was going to be leaked to me just before I got cut off, DIA document. And I was told this will explain exactly what's going on. And unfortunately, I got cut off just before that. I would have had this document and I would have released it as well. So there's these documents floating around and these people in behind, even though they're compromised, you've got to sort of you know cut them slack because they made agreements with other people. There's a lot of stuff that these people know. I mean, if you take a look at the Wilson Leak document from 2002, Eric Davis, they call him a savant. And the guy is, he's the most mm -hmm. brilliant guy you've ever met in your life. He's got a photographic memory and stuff like that. He knew that in 2002. Do you think he stopped looking for stuff after that? He was, he worked intelligence. He was in South Korea before he started as a student type thing. When he was working on his degree, he was in intelligence. He's not a stupid guy. And what mm -hmm. has he learned since 2002? They know all sorts of stuff. Like you hear this latest one about the craft. The, the general who sees the craft. I heard that story like 20 years, 25 years ago. And the fact that he touched the craft, the craft was alive, this general. And that part of the story people haven't told, but all this stuff is floating around and it sort of stays there. It sort of floats around, but nobody can confirm it. And I guess that's what the, the government wants. So they'll tell more stories. You go tell more stories. You can tell more stories, or they can even, you get compromised by the fact that you can, you and I can have the same source. So he'll tell you one thing, and then they'll come and tell me something else and you and I'll start fighting. And that's what happened with what's called the Holloman Air Force Base document, which it's going to be talked about. I mean, I've got this Jimmy Carter book coming out. And I'm going to talk about this Holloman Air Force Base film that Bob Emenager and Alan Sandler had and still have in a vault, this top secret film that they still have. Well, Alan Sandler has it. And the whole story was that when Bob told me the story and he was involved in this, he had the film in his possession. He was told it was May of 1971. Then Richard Doty comes out and says, no, no, that's not what it was. It was 1964. The aliens got lost and they were at White Sands. And I'm going, the aliens got lost, really? I mean, and it's, and that was the deal. So Linda was telling one story. Linda was saying it was 1964, the Holman Air Force Base film. I'm saying, no, it was May of 1971. I talked to Bob Eminer. He had the film. He's the guy that was behind the thing. But that's what they do. So me and Linda are fighting about, is it 64? Is it 71? And nobody believes any of us and that's what that's what they can do if you get a 
tied into some guy who can feed you stuff and you can't talk about it is they're going to feed stuff to you. The fastest way to kill a story is not to go kill the guy, is to put dirt in the water, is go tell somebody else another story that sounds the same so that, that nobody knows who's actually telling the real story. Well, and they also feed information to those people that's false too. Yeah. That's specific to them so that if they share it with somebody else, exactly. they know exactly who shared it. Exactly. I heard this back when the MJ-12 documentary, you, you, you probably weren't around when that was going on, but they were talking about there. Like It can be just a period, one period in a sentence that is added somewhere, and that's the cue. And they can so they can tell who's leaking the stuff. So they'll put out three or four different versions, and then they can track who's actually compromised and who's leaking material. And you're not going to notice the period, but they know exactly what part of the document has been altered. And that, so that's what they'll do in, in terms of getting the story out. I always said they're doing this gradual disclosure thing. They don't want people back in 1947. So what they do is they tell the real story and they fictionalize it. Or if you've ever done the thing, Chase Brandon, who apparently has disappeared. Chase Brandon was the guy who was the CIA guy for Hollywood. He was the guy that when you went into Hollywood and said, hey, Sean, I hear you're doing a, a documentary on the CIA. And you go, yeah. Hey, ever been to the CIA? No, not go to CIA. We can we show how it works and we it'll help you in your documentary. And so what you do is you don't kill the guy, you direct him in the direction you want him to go. We can give you some planes for your film and, and this kind of stuff. And that's that's how they're directing it. And so they'll actually release material that's been altered. So it's not release of classified material and, and they can monitor the story. They can make it go the, the direction they want it to go. There was even a story that uh, we'll talk about portals in a minute with Ron Pendolfi and his wife was having a thing on portals on the internet. And Sid Goldberg was on there uh, from Gaia TV. And Sid says, someone ask a question. Does Ron Pendolfi vet everything that Stephen Greer puts out? And then there's, there's this sort of silence. And then you hear Ron in the background. And he's there, but he's in the background. He's standing in the room. And he said, what material? And then Sid Goldberg repeats the question. He says, does this Stephen Greer's material vetted by Ron Pendolfi? And then there's this dead silence. And he says, I think I got my answer. <laughs> So you get that kind of stuff eh? where, you know, these people are, and they've talked to me. I've talked to a lot of these guys and they know where the line is. They know what's classified and what's not classified. Even Ron Pendolfi talks about this thing. He keeps claiming the president doesn't have a need to know, does not have a need to know that if we decide, you know, there's even one statement that his assistant Dan Smith put out and it said, we just tell the president what he needs to know and hope we don't have to put him down. And Dan put this out on his blog. And so when Dan went on coast to coast, I said to George Knapp, I said, hey, ask him about this thing about Ron Pendolfi saying we tell the president when he needs to know and hope we don't have to put him down. And then he asked Dan, Dan, you wrote this on your blog. And Dan goes, you wrote that on my blog? I don't remember writing that on my blog. <laughs> and that's how it ended. But that's the kind of thing where, you know, people like that know where the thing is. And I don't really go after those people. It's totally pointless, especially because I'm a Canadian. And one guy said to me, he said, Ron Pendolfi's coming to this event. I'm going to get him to tell you something. I go, He's not going to tell me anything. Why would he tell me? It's classified. Yeah, I, you understand how the game is played. It's, it's classified. He's not going to tell me. And I'm, I'm a foreign national. He's not going to tell me anything. <laughs> he's going to tell me classified. No, he's going to He's going to tell you. And then, of course, Ron didn't show up at the event. But that's the whole deal is these guys are doing their job. So what I do is I listen to people around them. So I've only indirected contacted Ron a couple of times by email. But other than that, I follow everybody that he knows. Hey, Ron, what Ron, did Ron tell you this story? And, and you get these little bits and pieces, and that's how you put the, the pieces together. So me it's like a chess game i used to play very good chess as a kid i stopped playing because i just didn't want to lose so but to me it's like the game is a chess game if you see it that way you i think you play it right is you look at the board and you look at your pieces 
and you do not make a move until I know what you're doing. I'm trying to figure out not so much what I'm going to do. I'm going to, and then, and once I see, then I, oh, I, I don't see what you're doing. And then I set up the trap. And and next thing I know, I, I've got it. And, it. and that's the whole thing here is you got to figure out what is the other side doing? Not so much people get into their own thing about, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And I've got this plan and whatever. And to me, it's more important to watch what's actually going on because everything is a symbol of something deeper in, in in the game and to me it's a game it's it's about winning the game it's not about having a good time i'm not in it for money i don't need people's money or whatever i'm just in this to figure this thing out and the fastest way i can get it and it to me is is to to watch the thing and to listen to people who are in contact with these people because eventually everybody sort of says something and you put the pieces together and it, it starts to make sense and i i can say that 1975 till about 2012 I was spinning my wheels. I wasn't really getting anywhere. I was doing like everybody else was doing, gathering UFO sightings and telling stories and stuff like that. After 2012, it started to come together. And I think I have a pretty good idea of what's going on now, both on the alien side and the government side. It's starting to come together for me. And I, I really appreciate even being allowed to play the game. And I see everybody's role, that they have a role to play, but I have my role to play too. And as I said earlier on, I think I'm actually getting some hints as to which direction to go do this next and everything seems to come together. So in, interesting stuff. I mean, the thing with the ship was something that was given to me and uh, these people started coming to me. And I say, as Gary Nolan says, one case is anecdotal, two is evidence. And I got 36 of these people plus more now and 36 people all telling this very bizarre, even Hal, Hal Putoff said, he said, you look at the most bizarre stories. He, he's interested in the one, why is the craft bigger on the inside than the outside? He said, when you somebody tells you a bizarre story like that, that's not something you're going to put in your story. You're not going to put in your story, hey, I went on right. the other side of the galaxy in one second, or the craft was 10 times bigger inside as outside, or I could see in 360 degrees. You're not going to put that in your story. If you want someone to believe, or this woman, if you're going to get people to believe your story, you're not going to say, hey, I flew the craft. Yeah, yeah sure you did. And that's the whole thing. The bizarre parts are the parts you got to listen to, because that's the kind of stuff where this person couldn't be making this up, especially when it starts to agree with 36 other people telling this bizarre story. And these people all came to me. I can guarantee you, I did not, a couple of them I tracked down, but most of them, they sort of just appeared. And it's like, you flew the craft too. And it's like, almost like these people were coming to me for a reason. Well, more importantly, when those bizarre stories resonate with something in a completely different field in a completely mm -hmm. different human endeavor i'll give you an example so you talked about the 360 yeah so i have a, a friend who served as a delta operative yeah. so the operation detachment delta elite direct action type people and they train people not to look directly at sentries because there is some freakish human ability that if you stare at somebody long enough and they're not looking at you, they will look in your direction. Yeah. Right. But the same, same, or somebody, you know, if somebody's looking at you from behind, you kind of have an awareness that they are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And again, and it's, that, it's that completely different fields. And yeah. And that's, that's where I think that especially the intelligence or the DARPA end of the thing, We'll be looking at this kind of stuff because it, it has great potential in terms of, of developing stuff. And I refer to that. I wrote a book on uh, ports and manifestations, which is I call it weird. It is the weirdest stuff you've ever seen in your life. Stuff appearing, falling out of the ceiling and stuff around experiences and stuff like that. And in that regard, I quote a 1974 DIA document that talks about this idea of apporting things like the Skinwalker Ranch. How do you put four bulls inside a trailer, a locked trailer? Mm -hmm. And how do you put the groceries back in the bag and stuff like this? These weird things and things moving around. And the DIA document says, 
basically to paraphrase, it says, if we can develop this technology of application, we could go to the enemy, go inside the vault, get the documents, bring them back to Washington, photocopy them, put them back in the vault, and they would not even know we were there. So they're looking at this. I mean, if you can do this kind of stuff, you can make stuff go through walls and stuff, you can bet. And there's nobody going to tell me DARPA ain't working on this. There's no way. I mean, they may not be getting anywhere. But you look at the potential, and that's why I said they went to Skinwalker Ranch. And even the Skinwalker people say, no, I think there's there's no way you're going to go there for UFOs because there really wasn't that much UFO activity. It was this weird stuff of stuff moving mm-hmm. around and portals opening and stuff like that. And if you're an intelligence guy, if, if you're this you know top guy with two PhD degrees and you go there, you say, wow, man, if we could talk in people's heads, like the, these three special forces guys, when they're walking down the road and they pull out of the Skinwalker book, they're just before they they, they felt the, the cold stuff and all that kind of stuff. And there's this fear, this voice came in their head and said, leave, you are not welcome. And, and you think that if you're the intelligence guy, you say, that's pretty scary, but man, if we could develop that, man, can you imagine going to, in, the, in the field of war where you could actually go in the other guy's bunker or you could go to Putin and tell him, this is God, I don't want you to surrender, you know, and stuff like that. You've got to see the military potential of this kind of stuff. And they got to be all over it. There's no way they would be ignoring this. I mean, if, if you know, if you're got any sort of sense of intelligence, plus the fact that the Chinese have got to be working on it. And I know Hal Putoff, my friend Bob Emmeniger, who did this, the, the Holman Air Force Base thing, he was going to go do a documentary in China based upon material that Hal Putoff had given him on these kids, the Chinese kids. The CIA had watched mm-hmm. these Chinese kids who were able to make stuff. They had the little jars and they'd make the seed come outside the jar and they'd make stuff move around inside. And you say, ah, it's all nonsense. It's all in the psychokinesis, all nonsense. But if you're the CIA, you say, man, let's watch these kids. Like, what's going on here? And Bob was going to go do this documentary, but because his wife didn't want him to go on with Alan Sandler, the whole thing got killed. But he was going to go do a documentary and he'd actually had a meeting with the Pentagon to do a documentary on these kids in china that the cia was looking at in the 1980s they were doing all this kind of stuff why would you not i mean if you can do this kind of stuff it's got to have tremendous military applications well it happens on the subatomic scale all the time it's called quantum tunneling right so if you were able to direct that energy and even right now what we perceive as solid reality is not really solid like you and i are just vibrating electrons with potentials, right? With yeah. wave potentials. It's called the De Broglie equation. Yeah. Right? 99.999% of us are, it's just empty space. You're not even sitting in your chair right now. You're actually yeah. levitating. Levitating over. on the chair. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Right. And that's, so, that's where you, you go to this leading edge. That's why DARPA is so important. I wrote about DARPA in 1989 already. And the Jasons is if I was there, I mean, the Jasons were the top physicists. We, why would you not put this problem in front of them? And a lot of them claimed they, they weren't put it, put it in front of them. But when you start looking at DARPA, Bob Emmeniger told me a story that in the 1970s, they wanted to do these documentaries on the military, and then they're going to hide the UFO documentary behind these other documentaries, and they're going to do 3D holography and working with dogs and dolphins and all this kind of stuff. And he said he was in this lab, in a DARPA lab, and there was this guy sitting, there's this big, like, computers in those days, they're huge computers, and the guy was sitting there, and he said, show Bob what you're doing. He said, I can't, classified. I can't talk about it. He said, you have clearance, just tell him what you're doing. And he said, I'm talking to this machine, and he, he thinks in his head, and he goes, well, I can't remember what the word was, like dog or something. And, and the computer goes, dog. <laughs> and he had 10 words. He had 10 words. This is 1972, 73. This guy's talking mentally to this computer in DARPA. And you, you realize, I mean, if that's it, Bob, and Bob wouldn't make up a story because he was an interest in UFOs at all. He just was telling all these weird stories of all these places they took him and stuff he saw. 
And if they had that in 1972, you could bet they may not be making progress, but that's why they're so interested in remote viewers. That's why they're so interested in experiencers, because these the people on the leading edge and you can watch them and you can figure out what's going on. Like, how does Chris Bledsoe get these people to come in? Even if you've heard the story, you start to realize that this story with Tim Taylor. Have you heard the story? Have you read Chris's book? Chris Butzel's book. He talks about I still this. have to read it, but I okay, definitely so his it. son tells yeah. a story in more detail than in the book. But this Tim Taylor guy who I've actually met, who has he's an experiencer. And a lot of these guys are experiencers. Like Nolan's an experiencer, semi yep. an experience. All these guys are experiencers. And so they tell the story that Tim Taylor's an experiencer. I remember talking to Tim Taylor. He had this invention, and the company that the invention was part of, I don't know if it's the whole company or part of it or whatever, is all medical stuff he was he was getting. It sold for $100 million on NASDAQ. So there's some money in this stuff. And he was telling me this, this stuff, and we're talking about downloads and how he got the, this idea and stuff like that. And Chris Bledsoe's son tells the story how Tim comes in and he says to, to Ryan, he says, put your hand up. And there's this piece of metal. He puts a piece of metal in his hand. And he says, what do you feel? Nothing. And he takes a second piece of metal, a different color piece of metal, and he puts it in his hand. And he feels a shock go up his arm. And he goes, what the heck is that? And then he brings in uh, the brother and the other brother and the sister, and they all get the shock up their arm. Then they bring in the one's girlfriend who has never had an experience. They bring her in, nothing happens. Then they put it in Chris's hand, and he basically just goes, he's almost like goes comatose. He just he has this tremendous reaction. And Tim says it's from 50 million light years away or something, and it, it confirms that you've been in face-to-face with a being. And it's like, that, <laughs> and both of them are telling the story. So then you go like, they know some stuff that they know some stuff that you're hearing about because they, they you hear Ryan tell a story and then Chris tells it in a little bit less detail in the story. But if you re- go to Ryan's blog or in his podcast, he tells the story in very great detail about these two pieces of metal. So what do they know? They, they're figuring this stuff out, but it's all in behind scenes and it's it's fascinating. And why would you not be trying to figure this stuff out? Why would you not figure out like downloads? Even with Tim Taylor, I have because I had the download experiences myself. So I'm asking him about it. And I remember he he said, you know, the night before I got that idea in my head, he said, the last thing I remember was a hooded figure standing at the end of the bed. I said, really? Could you see its face? And he said, no, I couldn't see its face. And that's what Jim Semi Vance is the same thing. The hooded being comes through the room and he couldn't see the face and it goes through the room and stuff like that. And and you, you start putting this stuff together and you realize these people are like you and I. They're down the rabbit hole. They have no choice. They're having these experiences. They're trying to figure it out as well. And I don't think anybody's got it figured out, but it, it's this veil thing that the veil is there and it's there for a reason. And we're to figure it out. It's not like you're they're gonna you because you're interested, the the universe is gonna take you to grade 12 and graduate you. No, you gotta do your homework. And if you fail your homework, you're gonna do it again. And we're to figure it out. It's it's the trip, not the the destination is important. We're more interested in destination. Just tell us what's going on. Forget about all this stuff. I've got a football game to watch. I mean, what what are the aliens doing? Why do they why did they land on the White House lawn? And the whole thing is because they want us to figure it out. That's why this latest lecture I'm doing is called the theory of wow. If you take a look at what they're doing, they're not doing anything. They're just doing the theory of wow. Why do UFOs have lights on it? So you can see them. They want you to see them. It's like, oh, we're over here. Well, come chase us, Nimitz guys. Come on, chase us. And we'll put bubbles under the water. And everybody's going, oh, look out. And then they, they do cattle mutilations and they do crop circles and they, and all the stuff. And everybody's going, what the heck's going on? And everybody's scrambling around. And that's what they're doing. They're just making us try to figure it out ourselves. But if they, if they wanted, they could land and tell us. But that you can't do your kids' homework for them. You have to figure it out for yourself. So that's why there's a veil. And they're not going, they're never going to disclose. They're never going to tell us what's going on. And that's part of the plan is we're here. It's a game. We're 
figure this thing out. And when we graduate, we graduate. And until then, you get stuck in the dark. They're, they're not, it's not Santa Claus. People keep confusing UFO and the government and Santa Claus. This isn't Santa Claus. They're not here to give us more toys or make us richer or reduce our energy bill or whatever. This is all about teaching us to, to learn and to realize the world is not the world you think it is. It's much more complex, much more magnificent, or as whoever said, it's not only more magnificent than you think. The universe is more magnificent than you could ever realize. All right, my friend, I think we'll end on that note. Always a pleasure. And uh, I'm looking forward to speaking with you about portals in the next episode. Yeah, and thanks for doing the interviews. You're doing some of the best interviews around in terms of getting to what I think is important rather than this, the sightings type stuff, trying to figure out what is really going on here. So I appreciate the work you're doing. Yeah, it's a blast. So I'm definitely enjoying learning all about this stuff. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new. Oh,